0: Verse 23 is where we'll start today, and we're going to go through the rest of the chapter with this story and two parables of Jesus. Matthew 21, verses 23 and, and following. Um, so before we get started, a couple of things I want to uh, kind of set the table here for the next few weeks. So number one, we are into a uh, starting next week, we're entering into a, a portion of Matthew that is. Well, I I'll just I'll use chapter twenty-two, verse one as an example. That is the most difficult parable to interpret in the Bible. Okay, which is why I've separated it off uh, for because it becated sermon next next Sunday. It is that it is the most difficult, in part because it begins to project into the future. Okay, and uh, and that is going to continue on. Through verse chapter twenty three and twenty four and so on. So, I, I, I'm in twenty five. Yeah, we'll start. Would you just say for, for, for this? So, would you would you do something for all for us as a church? Would you just say, you know what, that's a lot. It's it's heady. It's and it's potentially even divisive in some context. So, would you just pray for me and pray for the church, and just say, and, and be familiar with the text, like read ahead, um, because in it's. Because um, it will be enough familiarity to help us kind of work through some things. And, and be patient um, uh, with each other, with me, uh, trying to work through it. And then the last thing I would say is familiarize yourself with our statement of faith about the last things. There's a statement in the Baptist faith, the message, about the last things. Certainty to be Things are uh, what we know without any degree of uncertainty to be true about how this world ends and a new heaven and earth begins. You will find it to be a very large tent that lots of people can fit under, okay? Um, really, of any denomination. And there's a reason for that. And though, in Matthew 23, 24, and 25, or you could be anywhere in that tent about some specifics, but that is not gonna be a point of contention in this church. Okay, so you may disagree with me about some of the things that I think Matthew 23, 24, and 25 are saying or how they're going to play out in this world. I may disagree with you, but the only thing that we're going to to be true for all of us is what's in that statement of faith. Does that make sense? Okay. So, just it's, I, I, I'm, it'll be fine. It's going to be great. Like, I'm excited about it, okay? I, it's like a roller coaster, though, right? Like, you don't want to get tricked <laughs> like your parents may or may have done. To, like they did to me on Space Mountain the first time, right? I'm going up Space Mountain, and my dad's like, oh, it's like a spaceship. It only goes 38 miles an hour, all of which was true, okay? But it was dark. And lights and music, and I was literally going up the first trek of Spencer's Mountain going, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. And I went over the top, and I went, I want to go home. And if you've been on Space Mountain, that's only like a 10-foot little thing. Like, just that first, it doesn't even go downhill that fast. Okay, so I just, I didn't want you to feel like I was taking you on some trick roller coaster ride. I wanted you to pray and be ready. Here we go, okay. But today is, um, well, today's pretty hard, too which is why I've come up with a funny story to tell you as we get started, okay? So my, my mother, who loved me, I, I'm, I now know that she, she loved me. She had a way of doing something most every dinner that uh, I absolutely despised, okay? Um, she put vegetables on every one of my dinner plates for every meal, Okay? and not just one or two different ones that eventually I would tolerate. Like, it seemed like every meal that came around, she was putting on some new southern-style vegetable that I was just going to have to, you know, just, just consume. Like, beans especially. She loved beans. Butter beans, black beans. I mean, just on and on and on, I could go about peas and beans. Um, and she was not one of those mothers uh, or one of those parents who said, "Just try everything, but you can leave one thing," which has been the sometimes the philosophy in our in our family. You know, the expectations were high for dinner when it came to vegetables. Dare I say, unrealistic? If I'm speaking my mind, okay. About, about eating the so that, however, was not strong enough to thwart my will. Okay, so um, I tried really hard. As hard as she tried to put vegetables in front of me, I tried equally hard to not eat the vegetables that were in, in front of me. Okay, and But I also wanted to give my mother, because I'm an Enneagram 3, I wanted to give my mother the impression that I was eating my vegetables, but I also had my own responsibility and will, and I was not going to eat the vegetables. And so I came up with all of the things Now, children in the room, these are not suggestions that Pastor Rob is giving you to do to avoid eating your vegetables. These are things your parents know you are already trying to do to not eat your vegetables. This is not an example for you to emulate. It is an example for you to, what's the word I'm looking for? It needs to rhyme. It's okay. You, You don't follow my example. Do as I say, not as I do. Okay, so I had a dog, Oscar. He was a dachshund. Oscar the Wiener, yes, that's right. And he lived under our table at dinner because if parents weren't looking and that little brother who would tell on me, I could drop pretty much anything and that garbage disposal would just walk right around and eat it, okay? It was a great way of getting rid of vegetables. Um, Whenever, uh, maybe something distracted us, somebody knocked at the door or something went wrong in the kitchen with, with dessert or whatever, and everybody kind of got up or got distracted, I would pick up some of the vegetables and put them on other people's plates really quick, right? So it looked like I had eaten vegetables suddenly, rapidly. Um, you know, forget that part of it. But, and, and all of a sudden, my brother had way more than he's Like, have you even touched your vegetables, Michael? You know, like, it was great. It was, it was really, really great. But those were less effective, believe it or not, than the spread, I don't know if you're familiar with this tactic of making it look like you would be vegetables. But you can thin out your you can eat like all the chicken or all the, ugh, the fish um, or whatever. My, you know, And you can like spread out your vegetables. Right. And, and you can give the appearance of having done just enough for your exhausted mother to go, fine, just go put your plate in the sink. You know, does anybody know this tactic? Oh, yes. <laughs> Wesson's like, my kids have never done this. <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't actually eat the vegetables, but I did enough vegetable eating activity to give her the impression that I had. And I would even lie to myself about it to give my eater vegetables. Today, or just, or, or, Rob, do you eat vegetables dinner when your mother... Oh, you know, yeah, I eat, I eat vegetables. Absolutely, I do. Because I had lied to her enough about what I had done that I began to actually believe it myself. My deception of her led to the self-deception. Okay? So it's in moments when you're like that, that you need a... Um, or at least I do. And I think you do, too. You need a prophetic word. You need a prophetic voice. You need someone with authority to warn you of the consequences associated with your choices. It's, it's, it, it, it's, whenever you are deceived by your own deception of others, you need what is often called a come to Jesus meeting. We need to sit down and have a talk. It needs to be firm, clear, stern. You know what I'm saying? And mother would give me several of those through my years, by the way. Good moms do. So we're now entering into a segment of Matthew's gospel, into a segment of Jesus' teaching. Remember, he was king, and then he came into the temple, and he's priest, and then he came uh, to uh, the fig tree and spoke a prophetic word. The rest of this chapter and chapter 23... In 24. This is Jesus' prophecy hour. Okay. Jesus is speaking with a stern, clear, it's not, it doesn't lack compassion. It's actually a very gracious thing that he's doing here. Just to speak a prophetic word to somebody who needs to hear it is a very gracious act. Okay. We don't always need to equate graciousness with gentleness. But it's it's a highly prophetic, clear word, and it's directed. Specifically at, G- at the Israel's uh, religious leaders who are, they, this is what they're doing. They're doing the same thing with their faith that I was doing with my vegetables. They're putting on a religious show, but they don't actually believe. Their deception of others. And the next couple of chapters that we're going to look at today are a come to Jesus meeting for them. And it has very specific implications for us as well, okay? That's what I want to show you in the text. But first, there's a backstory. Look at chapter 21, verse 23. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to these things he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things who gave you this authority? So in context, right, this has everything to do with Jesus coming into the temple the day before clearing out the money changers, clearing out the exchange of, of doves and, and sacrifice, uh, sacrificial animals. Um, it has everything to do with him healing the lime the, the lime, the lame and the blind that were in the court of, of Gentiles um, and him instituting all of this ruckus and this change. The real issue for them as the religious leaders of the temple was the authority by which Jesus thought he could do all of those things. They are legitimately searching for Jesus' source of authority because his behavior is threatening their authority. Their concern is their authority, so they want to know, hey, where are you getting this from? Because as far as we know, we're the end of the line. We're the top of the pyramid. That's their concern. So look at Jesus' reply. Answered them, 24 and 25. I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I will answer yours. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's Jesus' question. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Now, at one level, this is what Jesus is doing here with the rabbis. It's classical, rabbinical, argumentative rhetoric. Okay? You answer a question with a more challenging question. This, this is the way they would debate and kind of do their, their thing, drive you absolutely nuts, if you were watching it, especially as a Western you know, person. But at a really deep level, right? Jesus is firmly but graciously pushing them to examine their hearts because it's the authority that they treasure. So he's he's, he's pushing them to look inside their own heart and see what they see. And now look at their response at verse 25. They, they discuss it among themselves. That Hold on. And they huddle up. <laughs> if we say, from heaven, then he'll say to us, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd. Because who's there? All the people from Galilee are there for the Passover. And they many of whom have followed John and, and followed Jesus. So they're, they're worried because everyone considers John to have been a prophet. So they... They take this reality and they come to verse 27. Their answer to Jesus is, we don't know. Not because they don't know, but because they treasure their authority. And they don't want to lose it. They don't want to question. They don't have Jesus weaken it by answering, yes, it's from heaven. And they don't want to lose it over the people by saying, no, John was a loser. Okay? Okay. So their response from the religious leaders is that they are more concerned about saving their face than they are living in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. They're more worried about themselves and their, their authority than they, their actual soul, if you will. Okay? So they're refusing to answer the question because they don't want to upset the populace on one hand and they don't want Jesus to be right on the other because it's their power, it's their authority, it's position. That's what they treasure the most. And just for a hot minute... Jesus lets them live there. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, Well, I'm not going to tell you. You're not going to do the hard work. Maybe I just won't tell you what the blanket answer is. Actually, you know what? I will. Because Jesus does. In the form of a parable. Look at the first parable, chapter 21, verse 28. It's called The Parable of the Two Sons by your publisher. Look at the text. So Jesus leans in after Paul's. I'm not going to tell you whose authority I come. Actually, let me tell you a story. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, "My son, go work in the vineyard today." And he answered, "I don't want to." You got a child like that? Parents? Anybody? Yeah. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to his other son and said the same thing. And he said, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two, says Jesus, looking at the religious leaders, remember the context? Which of the two did the father's will? And they said, the first, which is the right answer, right? The one who said, nope, but then actually went and did it. Not the one who said, yes, sir, and then never went. So the one who said, nope, is honest, has a heart reflection, and decides this is the right thing for me to do and goes and does it. The other one says, yes, sir, puts on the appearance, but then his heart never actually does it, right? So the religious leaders not only know the answer to the question, of which son did the Father's will, they also know that the parable was meant to address them in this conversation that they're having with Jesus about authority, and they also know which son Jesus thought they were. Which son are the Pharisees, by the way? The first one or the second one? The second one, that's right. That's right, They're the second one. Jesus gives them the application of the parable. They get it. Jesus knows they get it. Now he's going to say, let me tell you what this means for your life as a religious leader? Okay. Look at the answer. Verse 31 and 32. Jesus says to them, I tell you, truly I tell you, who <laughs> Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Why? For John, back to the question about John, For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, it didn't even change your minds then and believe him. You're the second son. You looked right in the eye of what you knew to believe. In Jesus, believe in the ministry of John, pointing to the Lamb who is going to take away the sin of the world. Now let me show you two really important things about this, okay? By not believing, the religious leaders were deceiving others and themselves. Okay? This is just part of leadership. Verse 32, right? John came to you in a way of righteousness and you didn't believe him, right? It is safe for us to assume that when John the Baptist came and people out in the wilderness heard his message, they would inevitably go, okay, I like this, repentance, I like this, go to my religious leaders whom I respect, who I love, who I admire for all their holiness and their teaching, and ask them, what do they think about John the Baptist? Right? And the religious leaders on a whole reject. There's some, other Nicodemus. There's some others who didn't. But as a whole, the religious leaders rejected John the Baptist and therefore the one to whom he was pointing to. So they deceived themselves about what was true and they misled those that they taught as a result. Okay. So in this moment, just like me and my vegetables, that's what the religious leaders were doing. Me and my mother. So, a prophetic word is needed to the religious. This is harsh to hear. Okay? But it's gracious. It's exactly what Jesus gives them in verse 32. Is a prophetic word. He could have said it nicer, but given the context of the last couple of days and maybe, you know, the turning over the tables and changing everything. And, you know, compassion. And, And Jesus also knows what's coming. We're just a few days away from the cross, Jesus is, takes on a more urgent and direct and prophetic form. And, and you can see that is so clear in verse 30, 31. Okay? The implication for the religious kingdom of God long before they ever will. Okay? The very people that the religious leaders despised are more in line with God's purposes Than those who on the outside looked like they had all of God's purpose working in their life. All because they didn't believe Jesus. All because they didn't believe Jesus. That is, that's crazy. That's the craziest thing about grace, isn't it? The craziest thing about grace is that hell is full of priests and heaven is full of prostitutes. That's crazy. Okay? Grace strips us bare of any work or status that you might think you could bring to the table and say, I am right with God because. Like, in Jesus' day, it was the most holy and religious people alive that flat out rejected Jesus. Okay? And the, and the ones who acknowledged and believed Jesus first were liars, cheats, and sex workers. I'll, let's put it even more strongly because this is a prophetic word and I get to get away with it because it's consistent with the way the Bible's written. If I gave you, a, if I gave you Ralph, if I gave you the data, Ralph, if I gave you the data, okay, If I gave you the information, I gave you a list of the daily practices of the priests and the the scribes and all the religious leadership in the temple, including the bad things that they did. If I gave you a list of all the things that they did in their life on a daily basis, but I didn't put a title on it. And I gave you a list of all the daily practices that tax collectors and prostitutes did on a daily basis. Which one do you think would choose? Which one do you think you would say is going to choose to follow Jesus? Just looking at the data, what's statistically more likely, right? The religious leader, and yet time after time after time after time, it's not who does. Why? Because of self-deception. Putting confidence in the flesh, as Paul would say, the first ones to enter into the kingdom of God are not the ones who are doing all the stuff to make it look like they're trying to enter into the kingdom of God. That should be terrifying to those of you who grow up in the church. Because you have every inclination to say, well, of course I'm a Christian because, and you do all of these things, on a, your life is full of religious activity and if you will actually do the examination of your heart, maybe, maybe, maybe your faith and your hope and your stock, your investment is in the religious activity not in the one for whom it is made to, to be geared for, toward. Okay. Okay. So that leads me to, to three points of application belong people. Just coming out of this parable, let's don't be too quick to put a label on people. If you look at Jesus' example in this parable, like go back to verse uh, 28, nine, 28 and 29. Went to the first son. My son, go to work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I don't want to, but later changed his mind. Second son, I will, sir, but later never went. You can see in this example that somebody's initial response to to Jesus is not their ultimate response. Somebody's initial response is not always their ultimate response. Someone's initial refusal, in this parable alone, right? Someone's initial refusal doesn't have to stay a refusal. Okay? Okay? Someone's initial agreement, parable of the sower, parable of the soils, someone's initial agreement is not always... So the, so the parable pushes us to examine ourselves and enter into these... Examine ourselves, first of all. Like, is my label right? right? Or also, if you, if you enter into a relationship with somebody in which you actually care for them and you're encouraging them and you're honest with them... You don't want to slap that label on them too quickly, right? Because everybody's journey is different, and we usually have a very limited idea about what the Lord might be up to in any one certain time. So we need to resist the label and instead just pray and encourage gospel growth in each other, okay? Wherever they may, may be. You want to be, this is a prophetic word from Jesus. We do want to be aware, it is a warning. But at the same time, let's we'll still be. Let's don't be too quick. We don't know where people are. Let's just love each other, serve each other, encourage gospel growth in each other. Which leads me to my second point of cultivating fruit. So we've seen this in Matthew's gospel, particularly in the parable of the sower and the soils. Believing and doing are not... Um, you cannot separate believing and doing. You, you cannot separate saying you follow, believing in Jesus, and then actually doing what He says, is what James is the way James would put it. His brother, which is ironic, considering how James didn't believe for the longest time. Okay. Um, the disti- we tend to make this distinction in. It, the, okay, let me put it this way. Grace. Right? Great. The radical part of grace is that tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom of heaven before religious people. Therefore, we, and when a really strong and true biblical understanding of grace is presented, what often happens is we, we, theref- we, we make the conclusion that as long as you believe with your mind that that is what is true, that it's all grace, you don't have to then follow in, G- in the way of Jesus and have a life that is holy and obedient to him. Okay. And in the, the parables of the soils, that fruit is what is supposed to follow belief. That doing never is separate from believing. He's asking for fruit in the religious leaders. He just wants us to be genuine, not fake. He wants it to be a fig tree that actually has figs, not with leaves that look like they should have figs. Right? Talk. And external appearance are very cheap in Christianity. It's what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. What actually counts, go back to Matthew 7, what actually counts is doing it. So if we separate belief from action, if we separate I get it from I'm doing it, it's a false gospel, just to be blunt. And Jesus directly confronts that in this parable. There's just no way a person can believe apart from obedience. It's just not there. Number three, there's no avoiding Jesus. You know, some things I'm relatively direct on, like let's just deal with this and get this over with so we can watch the game or whatever. You know, like, But other things I'm like, if I could just avoid having to talk about this with this person, I'm thinking maybe I could live with it for the rest of my life. And Jesus is not one of those people. The truth of the gospel is not one of the things that you can avoid. And I get that from the rest of the chapter and the next parable. Look at the next parable. Jesus is Jesus says one thing to the religious leaders. He says, "Look, one of the implications for this view, guys, is if you don't believe me, the people you despise are actually going to get in way before you do. They're closer to the kingdom of God than you are. And look at their life. It's because it's not about their life. They believe me, and then they're going to follow me and have fruit." But you just try and look like you have fruit without following me. And one of the implications is that they're going to get in and you're not. But you can't avoid this. Look at the parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. He's fully invested in making some really amazing wine. He leased it to to tenant farmers and then he went away. And when the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect on his investment. Fruit The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. That's pretty harsh. Again, he sent other servants more than the other first, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. "They will respect my son," he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, says Jesus, What? Religious leaders? What will he do to those farmers? He will completely, they don't have to huddle. (laughs) Did you notice there's no huddle? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him. And lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. And Jesus said to them, the stone that the built, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done. And it is wonderful in our eyes. Then Jesus leans in and he says, there's another application for you guys as religious leaders who reject your belief in me. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. That's a little more stern, isn't it? What was it earlier? Tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God in front of you, like Revelation and Flannery O'Connor, Mrs. Turpin. Now, instead, it's the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. You're going to have to deal with me is what Jesus is saying. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but who whoever it falls it will shatter him. So Jesus is under no But He gets it. He understands what it's costing them to deal with them. And hopefully they'll just fall, trip, and be broken in which case they can be put back together and made whole again. But to utterly reject Jesus once and for all shatters them. The same is true for you and I. We can avoid and Ignore Jesus all we want, but at some point, the cornerstone is coming In the, on a white horse with a tattoo on his leg. He is coming. And he's coming as the final arbiter and ruler of, of the new heaven and the new earth. You Either you will have tripped over him and been made whole, or it will destroy you. We cannot get around Jesus. How gracious of him to give us this prophetic word in case we are lying to ourselves and lying to others about what is really true. I urge you this morning to embrace the truth of the gospel and reject any religious activity in your life that you may be banking on or any hang-up that you might be having. Because He's coming. He's coming. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you are, um, you are, you are, you um, are, you are not to be trifled with. Oh, you yeah, I just feel like Your Son was so clear and so direct, and. All the I mean all the gentle and lowly and compassion that we've seen, we come to this, we come from death and, and resurrection of Jesus are so close to actually executing in real time history. And right there in the temple, Jesus is making it known to the religious leaders that they've got just a few days left to reckon with the truth of who you are. And so he's clear, he's firm. He helps them understand the consequences of their choices. Now, if you do this or if you don't do that, do you understand where this is going? And their hearts, Just there's, no, there's not a lot of hope that their hearts are softening. And we hope that that's not our case. Help us understand the implications for unbelief. And to respond in repentance and faith, trusting in your goodness and nothing else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.